Well, good morning. If we've never met, my name is Chris Thayer, and I'm our pastor of discipleship. I don't know about you all, but that last song just completely wrecked me. I've got the tissues in my pocket to prove it. The reality is sometimes, you know, coming up here and uh, sharing the gospel of Jesus can be intimidating. And uh, a lot of you all know that I've wrestled with, you know, anxiety and deal with some of that stuff. And uh, sometimes we can make the gospel of Jesus feel like it rests on, on my, I can, I can make it feel like the gospel of Jesus rests on my ability to proclaim the message. But the reality is all we have to give is a hallelujah because our heavenly father has given us the gospel of Jesus which has enough power in its own. Amen? Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles with you, that is great. You can go ahead and open them up to Jonah, the end of chapter one. If you don't have your Bibles with you, that's okay. The words are gonna be up on the screen at just the right time. And we go through that effort to ensure that you're able to read and encounter scriptures for yourself because we view scripture really highly here at Good Shepherd. And because we view it so highly, uh, there's a couple of things that we like to remind ourselves of every week. And, and we're gonna do it this week as we jump into Jonah. I, I love Jonah so much because Jonah's one of the most well-known stories of the Bible and also one of the least read. It's one of those stories that is the only, uh, the only book in the library that we call the Bible that's named after the villain of the story. So, so much fun to jump into Jonah. But a couple of things that I wanna remind you of today is the first one is this. Even though this looks like a book, it's actually not a book, it's a library. It's a collection of 66 different books written by a number of different authors over a long period of time. And most importantly, it's written in different writing styles. And when we're in the book of Jonah, we're in a section of the library that most closely resembles what we would call satire, full of all kinds of humor, all kinds of irony, not only to get us to laugh at the punchline, but also to take our guard down just a little bit and see how our own lives reflect the life of Jonah himself, the villain in the story. And we're gonna understand a little bit more today why he's called the villain even more. Uh, the other thing that we like to remind ourselves of, and you might not believe this yet, and that's okay, but we simply wanna let you know where we stand, and that's that we believe that unlike any other book or any other library in the world, that this one is uniquely inspired, eternal, and true. So whenever we read it together, we do this sort of odd thing where we lift it up, not because we worship the Bible, we don't, but we do worship the God who inspired the Bible, and we wanna show in a tangible way that we stand alone under his authority and nobody else's. The other thing that I wanna do before I say anything else is I wanna pray. Would you pray with me and for me this morning as I pray with you and for you? God, you are good. Thank you for the opportunity to be able to share a hallelujah, to be able to share the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ and what that means in our lives. Heavenly Father, I just thank you that when I'm weak, you're strong. Thank you so much that we can approach you about anything that we have going on in our lives. Thank you for this family that I have here uh, in front of me and with me. And Lord, I pray that all of us in this space would hear the message of the gospel of Jesus, that we would see how our lives might reflect Jonah and see the ways that you're calling us to change. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would wake us up to your presence. And I pray that Jesus would receive all glory, and all honor, and all praise. It's in his name we pray, amen, amen. Well, I have sort of an odd path, sort of an odd path to becoming a pastor. 
You see, when you become a pastor, you typically go to seminary, and a lot of people, before they go to seminary, they'll go to some sort of a Bible college or maybe they'll get a degree in religious studies. Me, I went to a school of business and got my undergraduate degree in economics. Now, how I went from economics to being a pastor is a whole nother story for a whole nother time, but believe it or not, I actually had a really, a, a lot of great lessons, a lot of great lectures, and got a lot of great information that I still use to this day in ministry. It has been this weird thing where God has used a lot of my undergraduate degree to help influence discipleship, even at Good Shepherd. But one of my favorite and the most useful classes that I had in, in all of my undergraduate degree was a class called Introduction to Service. Introduction to Customer Service. I did not have high expectations when I signed up for this course. But when I showed up, the lectures were engaging, the professor was brilliant, and the information was incredibly memorable and actionable. And as I look back on that class, it really shouldn't be much of a surprise that it was so interesting and so useful because the professor was a former restaurant manager of the Ritz-Carlton in New York City. And if you don't know, the Ritz-Carlton literally wrote the book on customer service. So this professor had all kinds of great information, all kinds of amazing stories, and really got me to think about customer service in ways that I had never thought about before. And, and one of my favorite lectures that he gave is what to do when things don't go according to plan, how to respond when a customer has a bad experience. And because he was a former restaurant manager, he related his time back to restaurants to teach this lesson, and he said, you know, there, there are a number of things, there are really three things that restaurants and managers and servers do that they should never do when a customer who's in a restaurant has a bad experience. Say I'm out on a date with my wife and I get a poorly cooked piece of chicken, looks amazing on the outside, but I cut in and it's raw. And when it, I notice that it's raw, now I'm upset because I'm supposed to be on a date with my lovely wife, but now her food's gonna get cold, I'm not happy. How should the restaurant respond in this situation? He said, three things that you should never do. He said, number one, he said that a, a way that a lot of restaurants will handle this, they'll comp the bill. They'll take a percentage of the bill off, give them a little bit of money to, to help smooth over the reality that the customer is upset. And he said, you should never do this. Why? Because the cost of the meal wasn't the problem. The real problem with the meal was that he has poorly cooked chicken. So you should first correct the actual problem. He said, another thing that oftentimes uh, restaurants will do, he said, and this is incredibly presumptuous, he said, they'll give a gift card for the customer to come back again. And he said, why would your customer wanna come back to your restaurant when you haven't been able to get their experience right the first time? He said, so instead, you need to acknowledge the problem and correct it right away. He said, the third thing that, that happens all the time that you should absolutely never do, never offer a non-apology apology. And he said, this happens all the time because the server comes up and what do they say? I'm sorry you were frustrated by today's experience. What does that apologize for? Absolutely nothing. All it says is that it's the customer's fault that they were frustrated by their experience. He said, instead of doing any of those things, you need to acknowledge the reality that that never should have happened. Validate the customer's experience and then immediately 
correct the issue, and above all, never, ever, ever offer a non-apology apology. And after I took that class, I started seeing non-apology apologies everywhere. You don't have to look very far in today's culture to see them. You can just turn on the news and watch a politician or watch somebody who's in the public eye, like an actor, who got caught doing something they weren't supposed to do, and you see non-apology apologies everywhere. One of, one of the ways that it'll happen is, I'm sorry if my actions offended anyone. What are you apologizing for? Nothing, you're just saying I'm sorry if you were offended by what I did. It's actually your problem, not mine. You're using nice words, but doesn't actually mean anything. Perhaps one of the most famous non-apology apologies, mistakes were made. Mistakes were made. I'm not saying that they happened with me or anybody associated with this situation, but somewhere in history, at some point in time, somebody made a mistake, and maybe, maybe that bothers you. Non-apology apologies. But I realized after, you know, just recently, that it's not just people out there who make non-apology apologies. It's also people right here that make non-apology apologies. You see, I told you last week that my wife and I just recently completed a class called Reengage and uh, here at Good Shepherd. And Reengage is a phenomenal class built for people who are married, who want their marriages to either go from struggling to good or from good to great. And this is the essential piece of, of equipment in Reengage. And they actually start off by saying, hey, everybody stand up, draw a circle around yourself and fix everything in the circle because the reality is you are far more responsible for the things that are going on inside of your marriages than you want to admit, and you are the only person that you actually have any ability to change. And this is true not only for people who are married, but for anybody who is in any relationship at all. Draw a circle around yourself and fix everything in the circle. Well, one of the lessons in re-engage had everything to do with forgiveness and reconciliation. And while we were taking that class, my wife and I realized we are masters of the non-apology apology. Just the other day, we were in the laundry room and I said, hey, I'm sorry you were frustrated by how I responded earlier. And what happened, yes, thank you, somebody laughed at me. And what happens when you give a non-apology apology in a marriage? Well, the, the other person feels like, well, now I have to explain to you why that is actually something you really should apologize for, and then we start doing this, and then an argument ensues. I see all kinds of head nods going down, but we can stop this, because remember, it's a circle, fix yourself, not your mate. So uh, yeah, so non-apology apologies, saw it everywhere. It's not only people out there, it's also people in here. Now, what, you may be asking, Chris, what in the world does any of this have to do with the book of Jonah? Well, it turns out, Everything, the non-apology apology has everything to do with the book of Jonah. Last week when we finished, we, we actually, we read the first part of chapter one, and when we were reading, we learned that God called one of his prophets to go to the ancient city of Nineveh that would eventually become the capital of the Assyrian Empire, uh, an empire that was absolutely brutal and ruthless in their warfare, wanted to take over the entire world and didn't care who they hurt to get there, and so God sent one of his prophets. He said, hey, I want you to go to Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has literally come up like a stench in my nose. Go to Nineveh, preach against it. 
And that all starts off very normal for a biblical book, but then we learned why Jonah's the villain because one of God's prophets called to go to Nineveh over here, and Jonah goes as far over there as he can possibly go. Literally hops on a ship or on a boat on the Mediterranean to get as far as he can to Tarshish, the end of the known world at the time. So Jonah running all the way away from the Lord. And because Jonah's running away from the Lord, the Lord caused there to be a violent storm on the sea. And when we ended our story last week, Jonah had convinced the sailors to toss him overboard. Jonah ends up in the drink, the storm calms. Jonah never once prayed to God, but the sailors who were all pagans actually did. They prayed to God, they confessed, and they ended up worshiping the one true God. So we see that God's prophet, far away from the Lord, these pagan sailors actually get closer to the Lord. Everything is topsy-turvy and upside down in the book of Jonah. So we ended last week, and Jonah's in the drink, and now we're wondering, well, what happened to Jonah? So Jonah chapter one, starting in verse 17, says this. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Now I'm gonna pause here for just one moment. This is the, uh, the, the, uh, a section of the book of Jonah where more ink has been spilled than any other part of the entire book, yet it's only the smallest of sections in the entire book of Jonah. There are really two camps when it comes to understanding Jonah and the belly of the fish. And, and there's one camp over here that says, well, we know that it's scientifically impossible for a fish to swallow a human being. Because it's scientifically impossible for a giant fish or a whale to swallow a human being, then we know that this story must not be true because the ancient people, they didn't really understand scientific reality. They didn't understand the problem with a fish swallowing a man. We, however, in the 21st century are much more enlightened, much smarter than they were back then. And because we know all of that, now we understand that this has to be some sort of a fable. And it's not just Jonah and the fish that this camp would treat that way. It would be everything that, Joan, that they would treat this way as well. Virgins don't go around giving birth. The Red Sea doesn't part. Any miracle really that's in, in the scriptures is really just an indication that these ancient people weren't quite as smart as we are. Well, then there's another camp all the way over here that has spent an inordinate amount of time trying to scientifically prove that a fish or a giant whale can actually swallow a human being because they're looking at that group over there saying, hey, we want to help you believe that the scriptures are actually true, so we're going to try to convince you that this is scientifically possible. One of my favorite Old Testament scholars when preaching or teaching on the book of Jonah, spent an entire lesson about talking about how sometimes blue whales will enter into the Mediterranean Sea. And now we have actually a documented example of a blue whale swallowing an individual and then regurgitating that individual out later on like we're gonna read happens to Jonah. And so this camp over here says, see, this is proof that it can actually happen. But let me actually suggest that both of these groups are looking at Jonah and looking really at any miracle in the Bible wrongly. Because over here, this group that says, well, the ancient people didn't really understand as much science as we do, therefore they don't get it. Well, that's actually doing something called chronological snobbery. It's believing that just because we come later on in history and maybe we have more scientific advancements, that we're actually smarter than the people who came before us. 
the reality does exist that we have access to more scientific information because the human race has continued to grow this body of information, but, but the ancient people were actually incredibly brilliant. They were incredibly smart. You, you, you can read any ancient philosopher or really read the Old Testament and you can see how brilliant these people were. They did not include these stories because they didn't understand why they happened. They actually included these stories because they recognized fully that fish don't go around swallowing human beings. That's not normal. Virgins don't go around giving birth. The Red Sea doesn't part because the wind blew all night from east to west. That doesn't happen. And because that doesn't happen, we actually want to record this event for history. And then over here, this group over here that's trying to scientifically prove that a whale can swallow a fish, well, you're actually focusing on the wrong thing. Because the hard verse to understand, or the hard verse to really grasp, or if you can grasp this one verse, the rest of it will make tons of sense, is not verse 17 in Jonah. It's Jonah chapter 1, verse 1. Because what does that say? The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. In other words, if the God who created this entire universe is actually intervening in history and communicating with a man, guess what? That God can open up a whale's belly or a fish's belly and cause it to do whatever he wants it to do because he created the whole thing to begin with. So the focus shouldn't be on verse 17. The focus really should be on verse one and helping people understand if we actually believe that God is interacting in this world, then a fish swallowing a human being is really easy to swallow. So, yes, got it. What does that have to do with non-apology apologies? Absolutely nothing. But we had to pause there for just a moment. Okay, so our, our friend, the villain Jonah, gets swallowed by the giant fish. That's how he's rescued. And then, remember, he's never prayed so far. Chapter two, verse one, from inside of the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God. He said, in my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help. You listened to my cry. You hurled me into the depths, into the very hearts of the sea. The current swirled around me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains, I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. But you, Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. I will say, salvation comes from the Lord. Now, we read that and we're like, oh boy, our man is finally turning a page. Maybe he's going from villain to hero. Maybe Jonah now is finally turning around and he's no longer the villain but wait just a moment. Because what is it that Jonah said? When we read words like, you know, uh, I with shouts of grateful praise will sacrifice to you. What I will say salvation comes from the Lord and you Lord my God brought my life up from the pit. Those are all great things, right? Those are all wonderful things for Jonah to say, but, but what did Jonah never say that Jonah should have said? Jonah never once actually 
repents. The whole reason that Jonah was in the drink to begin with was because he was being disobedient to God. This is really what God is showing him all kinds of grace and all kinds of mercy for. Because as a prophet of the Lord, when he disobeyed the Lord, God could have just struck him down right then. The real thing that God is rescuing from is his own rebellion, but instead, Jonah thanks God for saving him from his circumstances. Not only that, but where did Jonah say that he was going to go in this prayer? He says, in Jonah chapter two, he says, I will look again toward your holy temple I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. And where do those sacrifices have to be made? In the temple. And where is the temple? In Jerusalem. And where did God call Jonah to go? Nineveh. Our our prophet says all of these nice and flowery words to God, but never once actually repents and never once thanks God for the grace that he's showing him and the reason that he's actually getting that grace to begin with because of his own rebellion. And all of that makes perfect sense out of verse 10, and the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. It's as if the Lord and the fish could take no more and said, bleh, I'm done. You can hit your own ride to Nineveh. And not only that, but Jonah says, hey, I'm gonna make all of these sacrifices to you. I'm gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna go to Jerusalem. I'm gonna make these sacrifices to you. But Jonah, as a prophet of the Lord, Jonah knew his scriptures. Jonah knows that Samuel and other prophets inside of the Old Testament have said that God does not want your sacrifices more than he wants your obedience. Because what does 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 22 say? Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice. To heed is better than the fat of rams. Jonah says all of these great things, but completely misses the boat. And now we see even more why Jonah is the villain of the story. And all of this, again, the whole idea of God desiring obedience more than sacrifice Chapter three, verse one, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim it the message I gave you. Obey, Jonah. Stop giving me your platitudes and obey. Do what I asked you to to begin with. You see, the reality is, just like us, Jonah didn't wanna look at himself in the mirror. Jonah didn't want to confess to God the reality of his own rebellion. And when I think about non-apology apologies, the real reason that I give a non-apology apology to my wife is because I don't wanna look at myself in the mirror with sober judgment. And I don't wanna see the ways that I'm failing to live up to the way that God has called me to live. And Jonah is doing the exact same thing. And if I had to wager, I bet that you in this room do the same thing as well, not wanting to look at yourself in the mirror with that kind of sober judgment. 
So when I step back from this and, and I think about yours and my desire to, to offer non-apology apologies, to look at Jonah's non-apology apology, I can't help but realize that the author of Jonah is telling you and me and all of us this. You will never fully appreciate God's rescue until you fully admit your own rebellion. You'll never fully appreciate God's rescue until you fully admit your own rebellion. I told you all the other day I offered a non-apology apology to my wife and, and literally this was on Monday and I was like, oh great, I'm preaching on non-apology apologies this week. I literally stopped and said, I'm preaching on this Sunday so I better get this right, right now. I said, hey, actually that was a non-apology apology. The reality is I, I let my emotions get control of me today and rather than putting you first like I'm supposed to, I put myself first. Would you please forgive me? And my wife said, absolutely. Spouses, li listen for just one minute. If your spouse comes to you with that kind of humility, how can we not help but show grace? Amen? You'll never fully appreciate God's rescue until you fully admit your own rebellion. Because God wants us to have a beautiful marriage. But in order to do that, I need to be authentic and vulnerable, starting first with myself and with the Lord. You'll never fully appreciate God's rescue until you fully admit your own rebellion. Where is it for you? Is it with your spouse? Is it with your kids? Is it with that family member or that friend that you haven't been getting along with? You'll never fully appreciate God's rescue until you fully admit your own rebellion. Is it with alcohol? You've been lying to yourself, telling yourself that you have it under control and that nobody else is really being affected by it, but if you were to look in the mirror with honest and sober judgment, you'd see that none of that is true. And the reality is you don't have a drinking problem, you have a drinking solution because you've been running to the bottle instead of running to the Lord. And I want you to hear today, you will never fully appreciate God's rescue until you fully admit your own rebellion. Where do you need to be honest with yourself and honest to the Lord? And then be honest with others. Find a group that you can connect with and get help. We have all kinds of great connections with AA and other organizations that help people through these kinds of situations. You'll never fully appreciate God's rescue until you fully admit your own rebellion. Is it with images on a screen? You've been telling yourself that it's only you who's impacted by this, but the reality is your spouse hasn't been getting the best of you or even most of you because you've been giving yourself away. You'll never fully appreciate God's rescue until you fully admit your own rebellion. Is it with gossip? Starting to step on some toes now? Because you like to tell yourself that you know, those things that you've been sharing are because you, you just wanna get some wisdom on how to respond to the situation or, or maybe you, just, you wanna get somebody else to pray, but the reality is you love putting somebody else down so that you feel just a little bit better about yourself in comparison. You'll never fully appreciate God's rescue until you fully admit your own rebellion. Over the past couple of years here at Good Shepherd, 
we've been really honing in on this idea of authenticity and vulnerability. Because we don't wanna have a surface relationship with the Lord. The reality is until we're willing, willing to be real and raw and honest about what it is that's going on in our lives, we're always going to have less than what God intends for us. The way that real community works inside of the, the body of Christ is, is kind, of like my, kind of like my life group, where I'm able to say to them on a, on a weekday, on Tuesday evenings when our life group meets, hey, you know what, guys? I'm, I'm allowing my anxiety to control my life more than I'm allowing my heavenly father to because I'm, I'm trusting more in my ability to control my anxiety than for him to take care of what needs to go on inside of my life. And the, the beauty of that community, when I show that kind of authenticity and vulnerability, is that I have life group members who are scattered throughout this service right now today who have just been saying, hey, we got you. We'll pray for you. You see, God longs every person in this room to have that kind of community, to have that kind of love shown to them because he doesn't want you to go through life without looking at yourself in the mirror with sober judgment. He wants you to recognize the reality of your own brokenness, not to rub it in, but to bring you to complete and total healing. So today, will you confess to yourself and to him those areas in your life where you need him to come in and to bring that healing? In just a little bit, our, after we sing our last song, our prayer team's gonna be up here and they would love nothing more than to pray with you and to pray for you over that thing. Or any one of us on staff, we'd love to connect and we'd love to help you walk through whatever it is that you're dealing with, but you will never appreciate, you will never appreciate God's rescue until you fully admit your own rebellion. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for the reality that we can be honest with you and we can be honest with ourselves because you have given us a way to be healed inside of Jesus. So Lord, I pray that we would be open and honest with you, open and honest with ourselves, open and honest with some, some Christian friends who can walk with us through whatever it is that we're dealing with. We pray that in all of this, that the name of Jesus would be glorified in our lives and that we would receive the kind of healing and the kind of rescue that you long for every single one of us to achieve. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. And everyone said, amen and amen.